so if you guys don't know me, my name is Kate. I'm married to my husband, Sean. We've been married for about five-ish years now. We have a two-year-old daughter named Isla and a five-month-old son named Ezra. So Sean and I are relatively new Christians. We've been believers for about four-ish years now, so I'm not sure how long I can claim that title, but at least through today. That's gonna be, <laughs> so you give some extra grace to me. Um, so I told Rebecca one of the nerv- reasons why I was nervous to speak, especially on the topic of suffering, is that I feel God has been really good to me. Not that my husband and I have never gone through suffering, but when I hear some of the other stories in the room, it seems pretty minor in comparison. To which Rebecca replied, don't worry, Kate, there's still more time. (laughs) So over the course of the study, we've learned from Romans 8 that suffering is our reality, but it'll be worth it in the end. In Genesis, we learned why we suffer, because sin entered the world, and we see our first glimpses of Christ in the story of Isaac and Abraham. And then in Exodus, we learned God's response to our suffering. He provides a sacrificial lamb, he draws near, and he provides us an identity that enrobes us like a priest. This week, we're going to ask not what is the solution to our suffering, but who is the solution to our suffering? Who is the royal victor that will crush the head of the serpent and end our suffering once and for all? I've been in this material for about a month now, and I think there are three images from the life of David that we can focus on today. David and Saul, David and Goliath, and David and Jesus. And I think you'll find a lot of humor in the irony throughout the story as well. So this week when we opened our Bibles, we have God's chosen people. They're in the promised land. They're no longer slaves. They have God's covenant promises, and they are suffering? Are they suffering? They have everything they need, but do they have everything they want? No. So what do they think is the solution to their perceived suffering? A king. A king they can see. Remember from Romans 8, 24 through 25, it says, for in this hope we were saved. Now this hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Do we not all understand this tension? It's not wrong for us to want warmer weather and sunny skies to stick around. It's not wrong for a single woman to want a husband. It's not wrong for a married woman to want a child. What was wrong with the Israelites' demands was the motive behind it. They wanted a king so they can be like everyone else. But what's the problem with this? God's chosen people aren't like everyone else. They weren't supposed to be. God tells Samuel to give the people what they want, but to warn them that the king that they want will only lead to more suffering. In chapter eight, we read Samuel explaining the warnings to the people about the king that they want. Over and over, Samuel tells them that the king that they desire will do nothing but take from them. 
He will take their sons and daughters. He will take the best of their fields. He will take their servants. The word take is repeated six times in this passage. If we go back to Genesis and creation, what day was man created on? Six. This was God's warning that the king that the people wanted would be merely a man and he would fall short. He would take everything from them and then at the end of verse 17, it says, he will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Didn't we just spend an entire week learning about how the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt? and God rescued them from this suffering that was caused by another human king? Shouldn't that have caused them to perk up and reconsider their demands? Like I said, I have a two-year-old daughter who often thinks she knows what she wants. And we have a lot of friends with other two-year-olds, but they all happen to be boys. And sweet Isla is not an athlete. So she has boys running circles around her, leaping around her, bounding up and down the stairs, and girl can barely walk in a straight line <laughs> without falling. A few weeks ago, when the weather started warming up, we went on a family walk about half a mile from home. She wanted to get out of the stroller and walk on her own. So we take her out. She took about three steps on the sidewalk, and boom, she goes down. And not a graceful fall, not a stumble to her knees, her face skidded on the sidewalk and her legs came up over her head. <laughs> so we pick her up, dust her off, kiss her boo-boos, she keeps walking. Four or five steps later, boom, she goes down again. So at this point, we offer some assistance. Can we carry you? No. Can daddy put you on his shoulders? No. How about you hold mommy's hand so if you fall, I can hold you up? No. She knew what she wanted and she was gonna do what she wanted. She ignored my warnings and I said, you know, if you walk again, you're probably gonna fall and you're gonna get another boo-boo. She didn't listen, she took three more steps, boom, down. Like a strong-willed toddler, the Israelites ignored the warnings from Samuel and they got the king that they'd been waiting for, Saul. Saul is exactly what every Israelite damsel in distress is looking for. He's tall, he's strong, and he's handsome. He looked like the solution to their perceived suffering. Saul, however, is not God's chosen king. In chapter 10, verse one, during Saul's anointing, it says, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people and Israel? And you shall reign over the people and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you prince over his heritage. Wait a second. Didn't the people demand a king? They don't want a prince, they want a king. A prince is like going out to breakfast and only getting coffee, or wanting a full night's sleep and you only get a nap. A prince can't do all the things that a king can do. A prince 
is still under submission. It's not what the people asked for, but Saul was never God's chosen king for his people. He was planning ahead for his favored king all along. He went along with the people's demands because he knew that people needed a deliverer sooner rather than later. Saul quickly proves that he's not the solution to the people's suffering and as predicted, actually creates more suffering. In chapter 16, we see God sending Samuel to anoint his king. Samuel goes to Jesse and he has him line up all of his sons. We just saw the Israelites wanting what they could see and choosing out of appearances. And now we're gonna see Samuel do it again. He's looking at all of Jesse's sons and he thinks, surely the king is here. And where do we find David during this scene? In the field, looking after the sheep. He wasn't even on the radar to be considered a king in the lineup. All of his brothers were not only tall, strong, and handsome, but they were older than him. David was the youngest of his eight brothers, and we can assume from the text he wasn't very tall. But God says this, the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Ladies, we still fall into this trap today where we're deceived by how something appears. How true is this of social media where we see the highlight reel of what people wish their life was like all the time? How often do we scroll through perfectly edited images and think to ourselves, their relationship is happier than mine. Their kids get along so well and mine never stop fighting. Wow, she spends hours every morning reading her Bible while the sun beams in through the window and a hot cup of coffee next to her and I can't even crack the cover. Ladies, in a world of online perfection, we need to remember that looks can be deceiving which is funny because based on all of this don't look on the outward appearance talk, didn't you think David was gonna be ugly? I did. Although he's described as handsome with beautiful eyes. But the more I thought about that, the more I think that's just further emphasizing God doesn't care what David looks like. He didn't care if he was gonna be attractive or ugly. He only cared what was on the inside. David is anointed in front of his brothers, and like the Ruach we saw in Genesis that brought chaos into order at the beginning of creation and breathed life into Adam, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Don't you see the irony here? The guy who looks like a winner is a loser, and the guy who looks like a loser is a winner. The tall, mature man is called a prince, but the young, short boy is anointed king. Now, if a person was just anointed as God's chosen king, where would we expect to find him? On the throne, right? And yet, who's on the throne when the story continues? Saul. And where is King David? God's chosen king? 
back in the field, tending to his flock as if nothing has ever happened. After David's anointing, we see Saul, the chosen king of the people, suffering. Who just happens to be the solution to Saul's suffering? David. David, the anointed king, working in the field, is called to serve the king on the throne. Chapter 1620 says, And Jesse took a donkey, laden with bread, and a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by David to his son Saul. So what did David bring with him on his journey to Saul? Bread, wine, and a goat. The elements of the Lord's table and sacrifice. We see David being called into royal priesthood. Last week, we learned from Exodus that when we are invited into the royal priesthood, we are called to serve. Now we see David, God's chosen king, being called to serve the king of the people of Israel. Ladies, David was able to serve Saul because he knew that there, were more, there was more to come and he knew David's promise or God's promises for his life. Now on to our second snapshot in the life of David, the story of David and Goliath. We find ourselves in another Genesis 3.15 situation. If you remember a few weeks ago when we learned in Genesis that it starts with God talking about how the battle was between Eve's offspring and the offspring of the serpent, where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Then he switches and begins talking about a one-on-one -on -one battle. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In chapter 17, we start with a battle between two nations that transitions into a one-on-one -on -one battle between David and Goliath. So we have the Israelites on one mountain and the Philistines on another with a valley in between them. Out of the camp of the Philistines walks Goliath, a giant of a man, the text says that he was six cubits tall, which equates to about nine feet, nine inches tall. And he is covered head to toe in heavy, bronzed, scaled armor. Goliath is the serpent. Day after day, we see Goliath challenge the Israelites in a man-to-man -man fight to the death. No one dared take on Goliath, not even Saul, their king. Once again, we see the Israelites waiting for someone to deliver them from their suffering. And where was David during this battle? Back in the field, tending to his sheep. David is sent to the front line to deliver supplies to his brothers when he hears the challenge of Goliath and steps up to fight immediately without a second thought. Like the Israelites and Samuel before him, when Saul sees young, small David step up to fight Goliath, he doubts his ability to win just based on his appearance. However, David is not confident in his ability to defeat the Philistine. 
He is confident in God's ability to defeat the Philistine. Saul tries to dress David in his armor for protection, but David denies it. He doesn't need an armor of bronze. Ephesians 6, 13 through 17 says, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand in therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes on your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith in which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. David might not have been wearing an armor of bronze, but he was better armed than Goliath could ever be. Ladies, when we are in Christ, we are not only dressed as a priest, but we are dressed as a warrior. David fastened on the belt of truth, remembering the character of God and the promises he had made to him. When he decided to fight Goliath in God's armor, honor, he put on his breastplate of righteousness. He took up his shield of faith knowing that God would deliver him from the hands of Goliath, and he armed himself with a sword, or in this case, a slingshot, of the word of God and ran toward Goliath. I don't know about you, but Goliath was spitting a lot of game the last 40 days, so I thought he would put up a pretty big fight. However, with one stone to the forehead, Goliath goes down. Then David literally crushes or cuts off the head of the serpent. You see, shepherds typically used a slingshot to protect their flock. So David was pretty skillful. God was actually preparing David his entire youth for this one moment where he would use his slingshot to take down Goliath. How crazy is that? God was teaching and preparing David, his anointed king, through his waiting and suffering for this one moment. Although the story of David and Goliath appears only to be the story of an underdog who defeats the giant with tremendous bravery, that's not the only thing we should see when we read this story. We don't have to read this and think that we need to be David. When we read this, we can picture ourselves as the Israelites. The Israelites hide behind David and watch him win the battle against Goliath, and then they run after him. Ultimately, Goliath is the serpent that we were delivered from when we gave our lives to Christ. However, the enemy doesn't stop trying to attack us once we give our lives to Christ. He creates smaller giants that we need Jesus to deliver us from. For me, that's anxiety. When Sean and I decided to start our family, things didn't go quite like we had planned. I was referred to the fertility clinic where I got diagnosed with PCOS and began a roller coaster process of treatment. 
That appointment and that diagnosis sent me into a tailspin. How far would we have to go with treatment? IVF? What if I never got pregnant? How would Sean feel knowing I was the reason that he would never have children? How would I tell my mom? I was riddled with fear and anxiety, and I decided to take matters into my own hands. I ate all the right things. I flooded my body with gallons of water and vitamins. I stopped drinking caffeine. I put my feet up on the wall. I ate pineapple core because apparently that helps you get pregnant. <clears throat> I tried every piece of online forum advice and wives' tale that I could find. I was spiraling out of control. My world got dark and my heart ached every second of the day for a child. It consumed my every thought. We had spent years trying not to have a baby and now I was wondering how it was possible that anybody ever got pregnant. My fertility doctor had me use these awful digital ovulation tests that give you a smiley face when you're ovulating and an empty circle when you're not. Day after day, month after month, I started my morning with an empty circle. The only solution that I could see to this suffering was having a baby. Then one evening, after another difficult day of me crying and asking why I wasn't pregnant yet, Sean sat me down on our bed. He told me that he'd been praying and was feeling convicted because Sean and I were not pure in our relationship before we got married. We'd been believers for about a year at this point and we had never repented of that sin. So together that night, we dropped to our knees, we asked God for forgiveness, and we placed the fate of our family in his hands. The next morning, I woke up and had my first ever smiley face. I wasn't even supposed to take the test that morning. I just did because it had become part of my routine. TMI, but we conceived our daughter that day. <laughs> Ladies, just like the Israelites, I got exactly what I wanted, but it wasn't the solution to my suffering. God delivered me from my anxiety the way he thought was best for me at the time, a miracle. He only allowed me to suffer for a short period of time. Then, just before Isla's first birthday, I found out I was pregnant again. This time, no medical intervention, it was a miracle and a complete shock to me. I still remember sitting on the couch before everybody woke up for over an hour just staring at that test, telling myself over and over, I'm pregnant, trying to believe that it was true. When I told Sean later that morning, he was ecstatic. He threw his hands up in the air and shouted, yes! Immediately, he went into talking about how he hoped it was a boy, but another girl would be fun because they're going to be so close in age. I kept staring at him, wondering why I didn't feel the same way. Once again, my anxiety took over, and I was feeling anything but excited. I was so happy and content with our little family of three. We had talked about having more children, 
but thought that we'd get to space them out two or three years. Isla was still a baby, and I wasn't ready to add another. I didn't get enough time with just her. We were supposed to have another summer together, another fall, another Christmas before adding another baby. Our house was way too small. We had nowhere to put another baby. How could I possibly love another child as much as I loved Isla? I tried expressing this fear to people and they would all tell me the same thing. As soon as your baby's here, you're gonna love it. Your heart just grows. I don't know how else to explain it. Deep down, there was a part of me that knew that this would be true. But that didn't make me feel better when I looked down at my belly and felt nothing. No one, not even my husband, until recently understood how dark of a place that I was in. And I was too ashamed to admit it. This was the last thing that I expected to feel because I prayed so hard for a baby the first time. How could I feel so differently this time around? What kind of mother was I? I felt like a monster. I was suffering in a completely different way. Because you see, when you're struggling through infertility, you automatically get inducted into the club of women who can't have children. You are loved, you are supported, you are prayed for, you cry together and you share solidarity. This time, I was isolated and alone. I've been on both sides of the spectrum now, and personally, the pain of infertility was far worse than this. because It was agonizing never knowing if we would have a child. But the pain I experienced during Ezra's pregnancy was lonely and not understood by anyone. God chose to sanctify me in this suffering by having me realize that my sin struggle of anxiety wasn't one. He led me to humility by making me further realize my need for delivering. When we are suffering, we think we know what we need to be happy. We pray for this. I prayed for a child the first time around with Isla. What my prayer really should have been was for God to help eliminate my anxiety. God chose to reveal this to me in Ezra's pregnancy. Why was I trying to defeat my anxiety? Let's go back to Romans 8. My ultimate victory has been won. If he provided for an eternity free of suffering, then he's going to provide me with the courage to help me fight it. He's even going to help me with, provide me with the armor to help me do it. In the following chapters of 1 Samuel, we see the decline of Saul and the rise of David. After defeating Goliath, Saul takes David and does not allow him to return home. He puts him in charge of his army and sends him to fight his battles. David is successful and quickly becomes beloved by the people. This creates jealousy between Saul and David, which eventually leads to Saul wanting to kill David. David flees from Saul and hides in the wilderness. Isn't that ironic? The David whose great faith and belief in God's promises for him, who conquered lions, 
bears and a giant and any enemy that battled against him was now running from Saul? Didn't that make you stop and question? Knowing the promises God had made to him and his rightful place on the throne, why didn't David just kill Saul and be done with it? In chapter 24, we see David and his men hiding from Saul in a cave in the wilderness. Saul steps into the cave to relieve himself. Such a lovely detail to include, isn't that? This is David's opportunity. His men are encouraging him in 24.4 saying, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. We see David rise and stealthily creep behind Saul. But instead of striking Saul down, he cuts off a corner of his robe. David calls out to Saul and explains what happened. In verse 12, he says, may the, Lord God, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. David knew that it was not his job to kill Saul. Throughout all of his running and hiding in the wilderness and all of Saul's attempts to kill him, he remembered God's promises. He knew that he didn't have to kill Saul. God would deliver him from the hands of Saul just as he had delivered him many times before. The story of David running from Saul should remind us of Romans 8. Sometimes we suffer knowing there is greater glory to come. The world tells us, girl, wash your face and create your own happiness. Do what you need to do to get to the top. When you're struggling with gloomy weather, wanting a husband, wanting a baby, David shows us that in fact, we are not in control of the outcome. And what does this mean for us? Don't eat pineapple core. <laughs> this is it, ladies. David is the true and better king, right? Is he the offspring of Eve from Genesis 3.15 who would crush the head of the serpent, the solution to our suffering? No. As we have seen throughout David's life, things aren't always what they appear. David was a great king, but unfortunately, he is still only a man, and he soon fails. There is devastation, and our hope is deferred. We learn that sometimes we suffer as a direct consequence of our sin. I love my son so very much. And every time I look at his face and he smiles at me, my heart bursts and I'm filled with joy. But that's shrouded with guilt and shame that I ever thought that I didn't want him or wouldn't love him. If we go back to Romans 8 and keep that in the forefront, we remember that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Ladies, David 
is not the solution to our suffering. The story of David's humanity points toward another unlikely king, a king called into service, only unlike Abraham, the Israelites, and David, God doesn't provide a sacrifice for him. Jesus is the solution to our suffering. Unlike Saul and David, who were only men, Jesus was both fully man and fully God. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. He was the unblemished lamb who would suffer and be sacrificed for the sins of all the people. The story is so much more than ironic. It's on its head, it's upside down. Jesus, the royal offspring who would crush the head of the serpent and deliver us from our suffering once and for all, had to be stripped down naked on a cross so we could be fully clothed to suffer well. In the spirit of David, I thought I would close us out by just praying a bit of a psalm over us. <clears throat> so I have Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Jesus, just help us remember that you are the solution to our suffering. Amen.